I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It's Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza, live from San Francisco, along with Julia Borston from L.A. It's a West Coast takeover. Today, Unity rejects app love and declining. A $17.5 billion buyout offer. Both stocks are dropping today on the news. Tech Check has the exclusive. Stay right here. We'll have Unity's John Riccatello later in about 30 minutes. But first, Kindred Ventures, Kanye Macabella with us all hour. Kanye, welcome. I'm so glad you could join us on a Monday morning. You're up early on the West Coast. Hi, it's good to be here. <laughs> Let's jump right into it. Um, this kind of weird, do we call it a love triangle between Unity, Iron Source, AppLovin. What do you make of it? Obviously, AppLovin is the bigger company, bigger mediator, but Unity is saying no. Well, the first thing to think about is the fact that Apple has released these new privacy changes. Yeah. And that's the backdrop against which a lot of this consolidation talk is happening in the first place. So just really quickly to ground you in what's happening, there's this new thing called the app tracking transparency where Apple is trying to, in the name of privacy, uh, enable certain things to happen within Apple in terms of tracking and then other things not. And so a lot of these companies are trying to figure out how to react to that. How to the, monetize. And how to monetize. And the biggest thing to think about, which we'll get to later in the show, I'm sure, is that Apple is trying to figure out whether or not they can take more of a fee yeah. of what's happening on their platform. Right. And so as a, with respect particularly to AppLovin and, and IronSource, I think it's actually really, really important to think about ads in the context of scale and inventory. Do you have as many ads as possible, and then can you put them into a system to optimize them? And so it's clear that Unity wants more scale and more programmability with IronSource. And so it's interesting that they decided to do that instead of AppLovin, because AppLovin is actually the bigger uh, network. And so I'm curious to see how they're going to be able to answer that question later. Yeah, how Riccatello, who's coming up on the show, is going to say why they are dead set on IronSource, why their shareholders, especially when the stock was down, what, 8% last time I checked, Unity, that is. Um, but you explained why all of this is happening, right? All of these Apple privacy changes. It sort of put Apple Levin in this position where, uh-oh, if Unity and IronSource come together, what are they going to do? And so it was kind of, it, it justifies the deal in the first place, but also raises the question, what's AppLovin going to do? Exactly. If it doesn't work for them. Exactly. And, you know, it, it is also important to note that Apple has a 30% cut that they take on certain activity on their platform and then a 0% cut on other activity. Mm -hmm. And so as AppLovin thinks about its long-term strategy, they're going to be paying a lot of attention to which one of those pieces of revenue they're driving through their tools. And Connie, just looking at Unity shares down 62% year to date, though, with all of these different factors in play, you have the challenges of navigating the Apple operating system changes, and then you also have an environment that's changing. You have fears about an ad recession and also questions about whether gaming engagement will decline as people get out and about more. What's your big picture outlook on the potential or challenges for Unity right now? Uh, with respect to the challenges you've named them, Julia, and it really does come down to the fact that these platforms are all in an incredible battle with each other over real estate and over who gets to charge rents on those real estates. And so a lot of these companies are feeling the negative externalities of that. But what I think on the positive side of the ledger is gaming is actually still even 10 years, 15 years into this incredible growth area on mobile, uh, underrated. And I continue to believe that Unity's engine and its ability to power the long tail of creators and publishers is going to result in amazing upside for them. And Julia, right, it, we've heard from a number of CEOs. Some say that gaming is recession-proof. Some say that's changing, right? So it kind of raises this question, the state of gaming, Julia, where, where it stands now. 
Yeah, and also there's this question about whether the more targeted digital ads will be more recession-proof because it's easier to measure their impact. So, so many questions here. But, Connie, i got to ask, ultimately, do you think Unity made the right call? I think they absolutely made the right call because it's also a matter of culture. And so ultimately, they want to make sure they can control their culture as a game engine first, as a piece of technology first, not as an advertising infrastructure piece. And that comes second. And so to do that is an ultimately cultural decision, which I think is going to have long-term benefits for them when they think about where their ultimate customers are going. Hold on, guys. The deal's not done yet. I mean, Unity shares are down 7%. we got to ask John Riccatello if this is a done deal. Ablevin could come back. It was unusual in the first place, right? Kanye. So uh, we'll see. But no one's questioning whether a deal needs to be done. It's just which one. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, shifting gears here, we want to ask you, Kanye, about Disney this morning. Our David Faber reporting in the last hour that third point Stan Loeb is in the stock. Share saw a bit of a pop on that news. Loeb writing a letter to Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Loeb calling for significant cost-cutting measures, a spinoff of ESPN, and a continued suspension of the dividend. He also called for Disney to purchase the remainder of Hulu from CNBC's parent company Comcast. Uh, We see Disney shares are now up about 2%. I just last week spoke to Disney CEO Bob Chapek about those assets. We also talked about the TV bundle and whether he's worried about any sort of overall decline. Take a listen. We have such great uh, assets, such great networks, such great propositions uh, in the bundle that I think to some extent we're sort of the, 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 the main factor in terms of how fast that bundle goes where it goes. Mm-hmm. When you've got ESPN, which as you know is the 500-pound gorilla in that bundle, we sort of can help determine which way that bundle goes and how fast it goes. So we feel like we have some degree of control of that. Interesting here is he's talking about using ESPN for leverage to determine when they let go of this holding on to the, the TV bundle and shift gears over to direct-to-consumer. And in some ways, it does seem like what Chapek is doing and his priorities align with Loeb. Chapek talked a lot about profitability, the importance of pursuing profitability, less perhaps about cost-cutting. Um, but he did say he wanted to return the dividend um, to shareholders, whereas Loeb says they shouldn't. So, Connie, what do you think here? H- how is this going to play out? Uh, I think that with respect to the increasing profitability piece, with it, put cost-cutting aside for a moment, I think there's an incredible opportunity to consolidate. So in streaming, what we've come to learn and what Disney has proven is that content rules everything around me. And they have an amazing, amazing roster of some of the most inspiring IP. And what they're trying to do is by continuing to increase that bundle by bringing in live sports, by bringing in a lot of the deals that have already been signed with Hulu, to create a really, really strong bundle of content and then make sure that they can deliver great services and great software under that. And so I actually think that the idea of having ESPN and Hulu rolling in and having a stronger content bundle is absolutely critical. With respect to the cost-cutting measures, I think that's actually more of a defensive view, thinking about what's going to be happening in the second half of this year, which I'm sure we'll discuss more. So it's a secular trend that I think we should all be thinking about as technology companies going into the second half of 2022. Yeah, Chapek talked a lot about just how strong their demand has been. Um, so he, he sort of dismissed concerns there. But I, I guess it comes down to this question of, you know, these assets that they have, they're performing well now. But would ESPN be more valuable if it were spun off? I know it's something that uh, bankers and analysts have been debating for a while. Where do you come down on this? 
It's one of those things where uh, I happen to think that uh, the platform and the platform power that Disney has uh, might mean that it's a better it's a better asset within their home. That said, there are a number of companies where there's these individual assets that are sort of shining stars that need a little bit more cultural freedom and need a little bit more operating freedom to be able to truly grow. And so it's an interesting case. I can see both sides. So at the end of that letter, guys, um, Dan Loeb wrote that the board would benefit from a refreshment. I think we have an image here we can show you. It is it is a well-rounded, very large board of directors. Um, you've got representation from General Motors, Lululemon, Oracle, Carlyle, MasterCard, Nike, CVS. Um, and Julie, you know, I want to ask you as well, what do you think he has in mind here? What, what would a refreshment look like? And I'm not seeing any immediate direct tie to advertising. Maybe that's the whole idea as they get into an ad-supported model. Do they need a CEO who has more experience in that sector? I mean, certainly they could benefit from having uh, more more board members who have experience in advertising, but they also have to worry about making sure there aren't too many conflicts of interest, right? That has been one right. reason they've had some board members leave in the past. And, you know, as Disney gets bigger, it's a, such a diversified company in terms of exposure to the parks uh, and to, to streaming that I think that the risk of conflict of interest is, is one factor to keep in mind. But I'm very curious to see... Um, who Dan Loeb wants to add to the board. Connie, is there any hole that you see the need to fill yeah. on the board? Uh, I think you make a good point with respect to advertising, and it comes down to the fact that we're entering what I think of as streaming era 2.0, uh, and so we've left the idea of just having pure subscriptions and just growing on the basis of content deals and have to look towards advertising, and so I do think that somebody who comes from that world or at least has a perspective in how to think about building really great admin infrastructure would make a lot of sense. So we spent almost a whole block actually talking about advertising or advertising adjacent, which leads us into another story that was making a lot of headlines. Um, and that's the Apple meta saga that the Wall Street Journal detailed very well, um, that the two companies held secret talks to strike a potential partnership over ad revenue. This, of course, according to the Wall Street Journal, some of the ideas they floated, um, an ad-free Facebook subscription model that would have given Apple subscription of revenues since the Facebook app is listed in its store, or another permutation, Apple potentially getting a cut of revenues from boosted posts on Facebook. Um, so many different outcomes here. The outcome we got, Kanye, you talked about this earlier. Apple unilaterally upended the entire advertising landscape. Does it look less altruistic? I mean, they've said privacy, privacy. We want to give people control over their data. But this story makes it look like Apple lost. They tried to, or sorry, yeah, Apple lost, tried to make more money off of apps that didn't pay them and turned around and did this. What do you make of it? Well, the truth of the matter is uh, we should actually look. There's, there's case studies in history as to Apple's behavior here. So Google agreed. We found out relatively recently that Google paid Apple $15 billion yeah. uh, to make Safari, uh, you know, the Google search engine be the, the default browser on Safari. And so it's very important for Apple to take a fee on everything that they do on their platform. And ultimately, that's one of the core strategic initiatives that they have. And so this idea of privacy, in my judgment, was a very, very smart way to align consumer interest around their ultimate business intention, which is to make more money. And Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram, frankly, just weren't driving enough revenue for them as a function of their volume, because the vast majority of the activity that's in the boosted posts and in the long-tail creators there didn't count as the type of revenue that they could charge for. Yeah. yeah, and certainly aligning around privacy is a good thing when you're uh, talking to regulators as well, making, making it clear that that's your priority. But one thing that's so interesting about this is I'm very skeptical of the idea that a lot of people would want to pay for an ad-free 
Facebook. I think when it comes to these apps that people think of as utilities and they are used to getting for free, it's very hard to convert people to pay for them. I mean, certainly there might be a very tiny group of, of massive fans, sort of the core, most dedicated user base that would pay. But I think big picture, that wouldn't be a big business for for either Meta slash Facebook or for Apple uh, if that would work out. What do you think? Well, I think one interesting case study we can look at there is YouTube. Uh, mm -hmm. So YouTube started as an entirely free product. There's two billion people globally who have a logged in account on YouTube. And they've been able to make serious headway with YouTube TV, and they've been able to make serious headway with their subscription product. So I do think there is an existing comp, or at least cause for hope, that at that scale there's a way to create a subscription lane. But I totally agree that that's not going to be the majority of the user experience. Yeah. So. You know, Apple's really been able to kind of fly under the radar when it comes to consumer blowback and regulators. Do you think that this picture is slowly changing? I mean, you think back to the congressional hearings and Tim Cook kind of was able to sit quietly in Zuckerberg, got a lot of the heat from regulators. There has been a master class from Apple PR in how to figure out how to tell a story about yeah. their business interest that aligns with regulators and consumers. And But there's oh, cracks now. This is a Serious I actually believe there are cracks, but I still believe that Facebook and Google are playing defense and are playing catch up, mm. uh, and even to some extent Amazon, while Apple is still playing offense. That said, because of how extreme this change is going to be for the whole publisher landscape on mobile, uh, there's going to be increased scrutiny towards Apple. Yeah, so interesting. Certainly one to watch and a massive, a massive challenge for Meta and Facebook going forward. Now, turning to another part of the market, our next guest says cybersecurity is the name of the game and those out of the loop could suffer, telling investors to sell more traditional software names such as Salesforce, Okta, Workday and Snowflake, implying double digit downsides for all four. Here to break down his call is Guggenheim Senior Research Analyst and Managing Director John DeFucci. John, uh, thank you for joining us today. The headline for your note was easy to like software, probably too easy. Explain your overall outlook. Yes, thanks, Julia. Um, listen, it is easy to like software. It's a great sector. It's got a great business model with recurring revenue. Um, in times, in difficult times, that recurring revenue holds up. But new sales are not sold. <laughs> There's not a lot of new sales in in difficult times. And we think we're in a difficult time and it could be a prolonged, difficult macro backdrop. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about some of these companies, listen, people know that software is a great place to be. That's why a lot of these companies trade at, at the valuations they do. And perhaps it's not gonna look so great over the next year or so. But let's talk about those stocks you do have a buy on, CrowdStrike, Oracle, Splunk. What distinguishes those? Why are you so bullish on those when you're so negative on some of the others? Is it just about valuation or are there other uh, underlying trends? Every company is a little different. So yes, valuation comes into play every single time. But one of the things you mentioned earlier when you, in, the, in the introduction, you talked about security. Well, security's held up much better than other areas of software. And we do a lot of work trying to understand what the new business sold in a quarter was. It's not something that is just obvious. You have to do, you have to apply some accounting and some math to it. And, and you can, but you can, you can calculate that with some relative, uh, a high degree of accuracy, we think. And security did really well in the first quarter relative to the rest of software. The rest of software saw a market drop off. And if you look at the average non-security name in, in our coverage universe, growth in the in the first quarter was about 6% for new, what we call annual contract value, so new business. 
uh, versus 42% last year versus security uh, was about 39% in the first quarter versus 49% last year. That excludes Okta, which had an issue in the first quarter where they had a, a security incident, um, some call a breach. But so John, that, that's, that's, that's what separates the security anyway. Yeah, when I look at your initiations and I look at your cell calls on Snowflake, Okta, CRM, uh, Workday, how much of this has to do with just the sheer number of software companies we have seen come to public markets over the last few years and in public markets still? There's been so much money. Do you think that too much has been made that is unnecessary and now you've got an economic downturn bundling from some of the bigger players like Microsoft? Microsoft is a threat for some of these players, certainly, Deidre. I, I, but I don't think there's too many software companies out there. This, this is the software has been on a sort of a secular up, up, updraft for a while, and we think it's still got legs to go. Um, some of these names, though, the, the the calls on Salesforce and Workday, we we believe that a software company um, at sort of its its mature stage should have free cash flow margins of around 35 percent. We don't think that uh, Workday can get there. Uh, that's one of the issues with Workday. It's a great company. Like, listen, all these companies are great companies. Yeah. If you're a public software company, you're a great company. But Workday has this um, proprietary infrastructure that it's built on. And we think that's a big part of their R&D spend, or maybe not half of it, but a big part of it. So they'll never hit that 35% free cash flow margin. Similar on, mm -hmm. on Salesforce.com, if you look at the free cash flow margin and you take in to account acquisitions, it's been negative on average over the last six years. Um, yeah. Even if you exclude um, uh, Slack, which last yeah. year it's still been like three percent. So th that's every every one of these cells uh, are not like they're bad. They're not bad companies. But there's reasons that they're probably not worth what they're trading at. And I, I think what you're getting at, uh, that level of profitability, not at where some investors want it to be, especially in this market environment, right, Kanye? To hear um, John say, okay, software is overvalued, at least some of these names. That's like blasphemy to a VC. You guys love software, not just you, sort of anyone that comes in on from the Bay Area. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think John makes a good observation with respect to what happened in Q1 and Q2. But the, the interesting piece that I think is worth noting is we're in the midst of a transition from valuing growth to valuing profit. Yeah. And these companies had to adjust. And in the course of making those adjustments, some companies had a natural structural profitability in their business models better than others. But what I actually think about with respect to whether or not a workday or a Salesforce is going to be recession resilient or whether or not there's actually really upside there is more a matter of whether or not their software is fundamentally deflationary, whether their software mm -hmm. fundamentally saves money and cuts costs and creates more efficiency for these businesses. So I think about HR software, I think about CRM, and these are things where you're automating services that are ultimately very manual otherwise. And so I continue to actually have optimism about those. And one thing I'm wondering, though, is what kind of consolidation we're going to see. I, I know that John said that he does expect consolidation at a steady rate. My question is sort of how soon are we going to see some big deals and which companies do we think are going to be in play? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm of the belief that Salesforce is actually great evidence of the fact that they are quite comfortable <laughs> consolidating. But they can't do it anymore, right? This is to John's point. They've acquired so much that it's really hit their margins. And we talked about this a lot as well, private equity space coming in, doing some deals, but 
would you have expected more at this point, especially now with markets recovering? Yeah, I do. I do. I do think that, frankly, in Q2, there was just such a big transition and such a big transition away from growth and towards profitability and a lot of people trying to reconstitute their strategies. But what I do believe is going to happen now is there's a lot of names out there that are trading way below their enterprise value as a function of the rest of the benchmarks that I think there's going to be good buying opportunities. And I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a lot more acquisition in the next couple of quarters. Right. If we, if we hadn't hit the bottom, uh, we'll see. We'll debate that later. John, thanks for being with us today for your insights. Kanye, stick around. You're here for the whole hour. Coming up, the whales are out and betting big on tech. More on why Soros likes Tesla. That's next. Tech Check is just getting started. Let's get a quick check on Tesla. Shares have skyrocketed nearly 30% in two months ahead of a three-for-one stock split. That happens next Wednesday. Shares are off their 20, off still 27% off of their highs. They're up today nearly 2%. Um, they did fall as low as $630 per share in mid-June. Uh, they've now got energy, as you can see, above that 900 mark. CEO Elon Musk tweeting out yesterday that Tesla has now produced over 3 million cars in total, calling out Giga Shanghai on its millionth car in particular. Speaking of the company, billionaire George Soros revealing a new bet on the name worth more than $20 million. And this is as some hedge funds dive back into tech this whale-watching season. Leslie Picker does all of the whale-watching and joins us with the latest out of tonight's 13F deadline. Yeah, lots of whales so far. Uh, good, some good whale sightings ahead of the deadline. Um, Soros, as you mentioned, buying about 30,000 shares in Tesla. D1 also revealing a new stake in Tesla worth about $120 million at quarter end. The deadline for those disclosures is this evening, and that's when we should see the bulk of 13F filings appear. These showcase the long positions held by fund managers on June 30th. That's the last day of the second quarter. And they'll provide some insight into how professional managers capped off the worst first half for stocks in half a century and whether they were poised to capitalize on the rebound that ensued in the subsequent six weeks. Now, there have been some early filers, as I mentioned, not everybody procrastinates to the deadline with Soros, D1, Co2, and Baupost each disclosing their holdings for 2Q. In terms of notable tech moves, D1 selling down Datadog, Microsoft, soft open door and almost the entirety of its stake in Robinhood. However, it bumped up its holdings in Snowflake and Atlassian. Soros pairing back its exposure to Rivian, Airbnb and Toast during the quarter as well. And it sold out of DD. But Soros boosted exposure to Alphabet, Atlassian, Etsy, Snap and Qualcomm. Code 2 upping its exposure to Chinese tech, buying more Alibaba and JD.com, as well as Lee Auto, but otherwise trimming EV names, including Tesla and Rivian. Baupost trimming its stakes in big tech, Alphabet, and Meta by about 30% and cutting its Intel holding nearly in half. The first quarter, if you recall, saw a lot of managers rotate out of growth in tech, kind of mirroring what we saw in the broader markets. We can probably expect to see the same in 2Q, just kind of reading between the lines of what the market did during that time, guys. Interesting, you know, on the heels of this this news um, of Dan Loeb getting into Disney and also this broader conversation about how the tech market is so, so diverse and in many ways bifurcated and there's mm -hmm. still so much opportunity in, say, the security sector. Are there any categories, any parts of tech that you think might see uh, some of these whales migrate into? 
Yeah, it's an interesting point. And in talking especially with people who are involved in the activism world, we haven't yet seen that third point filing. Uh, we don't know if he held Disney at the end of the second quarter or if it was something he purchased in the subsequent six weeks. But I have been asking around more specifically on tech in the activism world, and they say that given the recent sell-off, we should see more instances of activists getting into tech uh, where historically they've kind of shied away from that because of dual-class share structures um, and because obviously the, the valuations have been lofty in recent years, but the recent pullback, um, at least the pullback from the second quarter, um, may have provided more of an entry point. So that's something I'm going to be looking out for. Just people who traditionally shied away from tech, are they seeing that entry point or did they see it at least at the end yeah. of 2Q? Exactly. And Leslie, thanks for bringing that to us. Um, Kanye, of course, 13Fs, they are backwards looking, right? These are moves that were made some time ago. We've seen the Nasdaq up more than 20 percent from its 52-week low. There's questions whether everyone was calling this a bear market rally. Now people are just calling it, you know, a rally. Where do you stand? Are valuations looking a little expensive as well? I think it's 18 times earnings. Um, as we head into another earnings season where demand could be weaker, yeah, it's still pretty choppy out there. Uh, and, you know, if you look at a couple of the pieces of news that came out today, the New York Fed talking about manufacturing production being dramatically lower than they were expecting. Right. Uh, there's still a couple of signals that suggest we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, and so I do think that valuations are still a little bit stressed going into Q3 and Q4. Uh, that said, it does seem as though the idea of us being in a full-blown recession the way that we were thinking about, call it a month ago, yeah. uh, may has passed. That's changed. Maybe that's off landing. And meanwhile, the CEO of Unity is next. Why? They said no to AppLovin. And what makes their deal with IronSource a, quote, superior proposal? We've been talking about all of that. Don't go away. Good morning and welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Bertha Coombs. Here's your CNBC News update. The United States is in a housing recession. That assessment this morning is from the chief economist at the National Association of Home Builders. He blames the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes and what he calls persistently elevated construction costs. The group's sentiment index turned negative this month. And in another sign, inflation may have peaked. U.S. freight rates fell almost 2% in July compared to June. That according to a company that provides invoicing services to the industry. A researcher at CAS Information Systems says increased capacity will help big retailers bring down shipping costs just ahead of the holidays. And Pfizer's chief executive has tested positive for COVID. Albert Burla says on Twitter that he's thankful to have received four doses of his company's vaccine and is feeling well while experiencing very mild symptoms. He is also getting Paxlovid, Pfizer's antiviral treatment. Julia, this has been the summer of event COVID, event COVID for so many of us. The summer of and yet another summer of COVID indeed. Thank you, Bertha. And Unity Software's board of directors rejecting AppLevin's $17.5 billion unsolicited takeover bid. Instead, the company will go ahead with its deal to purchase mobile app monetization software company IronSource, saying that deal will increase value creation for shareholders. CEO John Riccatello joins us now exclusively to discuss the decision further. John, thanks so much for joining us. You've talked to us already about why IronSource makes sense. Explain to us why the AppLevin deal did not make sense. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a subject we got into in some depth. With our board, we went into uh, a deep financial analysis and strategic analysis aided by smart advisors on the financial side. And the clear conclusion is that the 
uh, App Lovin proposal wasn't likely to lead to a superior proposal, and we're highly convicted about the positives for the iron source merger, where we can do better by way of our customers and better by way of our shareholders. I want to put all this, though, in the broader context about what's going on in the market. And we talked about this with Connie Machabella earlier in the show, this idea that um, not only is there concern about an ad recession, but there is also this question of how consumers are going to behave and whether they may be gaming less and spending less on gaming, et cetera. What do you see in the market right now as we head into the fall? Well, two quick thoughts. So the first is that we're broader than games. We do a lot outside of games and uh, digital twins and what people refer to as metaverse. So we're broader than games. But I tell you, I've been working in the games industry for 25 years. And while there are ups and downs around like a new console or major new PC tech or, you know, the introduction of smartphones, uh, this is an industry that's been growing double digits for more than 25 years. Um, you know, there's a little comparative slowdown, you know, when people spend all that time at home around COVID. Um, but engagement levels are strong. It's it's the only media in the world that regularly gets more than 3 billion people to uh, do anything in a monthly basis. So I'm really bullish on gaming long term. Give us a few more details. You said that the clear conclusion was that App Lovin wasn't the right deal. But what exactly about it did not clear the bar? Why is Iron Source a better deal especially considering that as of now, it has a smaller um, mediation business. Well, I mean, look, it's not simply about scale. It's about shareholder value. And what our board you know, looked at was a myriad of, of, of issues, but primarily it's around looking at the financial value for the investor. Secondly, it's about the complementary nature of the products and offering that Iron Source has versus, say, an Apple oven, and the strategic implications of that. With the Iron Source deal, we think we do better with our customers. We think we do better with our shareholders. We present a balanced portfolio where about half of our business is related to monetization, but the heart and soul of the company around content creation mm -hmm. is the other half of the business, and it's, it's really what drives things for us. So um, it was a complete evaluation. We can get all of those factors. We feel great about where we've come out. Um, if it's a complete evaluation, then, John, does that mean um, that you're not going to be looking at this deal anymore? Can't help but note that Unity shares are down more than 5%. Could you continue to have talks with AppLovin to get a better deal to maybe have a path for this deal to make more sense, at least for shareholders, if you're going to get a higher price? So three thoughts. You know, you know thought number one um, you know, variations at a share price up or down a few points every day. Um, we're really looking long term. What our board deeply evaluated is where we expect shareholder value to, to, to perform the best long term. And we feel really certain that that's with uh, the iron source merchant we propose. And our board recommends that to our shareholders, a, a vote coming up later in the year for the shareholders. Um, in terms of negotiating uh, with with Lovin, um, we've got a announced and committed uh, merger proposal out there. And that's what we're focused on. We think that delivers shareholder value, that delivers for our customers, and we're excited to pursue that and include that in the fourth quarter. But just to follow on, on Deirdre's question about sort of the, the movement of the stocks today, as we look at these movement, the, the stocks moves, obviously Unity is down about 5% today. It is down about 60% year to date. I know you took down your guidance earlier in the year. What is the message you want shareholders to have right now about not only this deal, but your outlook in general? So our outlook in general is, is very positive. Um, I think you may have noticed our, our most recent quarter, we pointed out that our create side of the business grew 66%. And what we really focused on was this notion, really two key thoughts. 
Idea number one is over the course of the next several years, we're going to see nothing but growth in real-time 3D. What I mean by that is gaming and gaming technology applied to real-time 3D digital twins. And that is a massively fast-growing business for us. The second thought is we provide the creation tools and the tools to operate those, those applications that are built in Unity. And part of that is monetization. And we strengthen that and other parts of Unity by merging with uh, Ironsource and bringing them on board. So again, we feel very good about this. Momentary jumps or declines in the share price are not the primary focus. The primary focus is where we're going long-term and the growth story with Unity behind that. And yeah, it's interesting because you laid out earlier in this conversation just how diverse um, the business is. So it's not just about games and ads. It's also about this metaverse business. You know, we've heard from a lot of these companies that are investing in the metaverse as that being a long-term plan. And then maybe near-term, they're focused on many of the, the bigger challenges of the day, whether it's navigating Apple's operating system changes or an ad pullback. And, and I'm curious if you're seeing any impact of this retrenching of the companies that had been focused on, on the metaverse, maybe in a more immediate way than they are right now? Well, first is the starting point. I, I do agree the metaverse is a long-term story, but for Unity, it's also a near-term story. Um, our most recent call, we suggested, and we pointed out that of our create business, about 40% of it, you could call metaverse. It's the non-gaming side of the equation. And we have you know a myriad of customers doing really, really well. It's increasing as a percentage of our business. So it's happening now. And the reason it's happening now is because you know we're essentially the plumbing for the metaverse. If you're going to build something in 3D in real time, more often than not, you know, 60, 70% of the time, they're going to build it on Unity. So that is a present day reality for us. And I think it's a big upside for us. Now, of course, there's lots of complexity in every marketplace. And in ours, you know, the ad side of the business, you know, increased focus on privacy, something that um, I'm a strong ag advocate for, um, you know, makes for some new challenges, but it's some new opportunities. And I think we'll see that play out reasonably over the course of the next, you know, two, six, 12 quarters or and, and out into the long term. You know, Apple remains a, a strong ad platform. I don't expect that to change. Uh, John, we're in such a critical moment for gaming and advertising, um, seeing lots of consolidation. Is there anything that would make you reconsider the App Levin deal? I know this is an all-stock deal. You, were, you would remain CEO. Um, you wouldn't get as many voting rights, however. So is there anything that you would look at? What would you tell shareholders that may be in favor of this deal? Well, well, first off, I mean, I, I just can't really get into hypotheticals. You know, we have a commitment to a great deal um, with Iron Swords, and that's really what we're focused on. Well, John, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us to talk uh, about the latest on the rejection of the App Levin deal. Dee? Hey, thanks, and have a great morning. I tried. I tried to see if there was anything. Uh, meanwhile, Adam Newman, he's getting a second chance. What Andreessen Horowitz have to do with that next. We are back in two. Adam Newman's cult of personality continues to grow. Andreessen Horowitz is investing $350 million. That is its largest individual check that the firm has ever written to fund the WeWork founder's new real estate startup called Flow. According to The New York Times, the investment values the company at more than a billion dollars before it even opens its doors. The company expected to launch next year. Mark Andreessen will reportedly join the board. Andreessen saying in a blog post that, quote, it is often underappreciated that only one person has fundamentally redesigned the office experience and led a paradigm-changing global company in the process. 
Adam Newman. Andreessen is, of course, referring to WeWork, which Newman mismanaged so poorly that he was ousted and the company nearly collapsed since going public via SPAC without him last October. The company has lost nearly half of its market value. You can see it trading around $5 now. Um, Kanye, you know, I interviewed Adam Newman at the peak Um, I actually went to a lot of the WeWork events where they would have all of their creators join. He is a very inspiring person. Um, You can still create a good business, but you can spend too much. You can have governance issues. What are you hearing, you know, in the Bay Area? Here he is again. Bay Area was pretty critical of his fall last time around. Yes, uh, there are a couple factors at play. Um, The first, I guess, is looking at what happened with WeWork in the first place. And the truth about WeWork is it was a cult of personality gone too far issue. And it was also an issue of investors uh, not, frankly, uh, being as judicious as they could have been, as they should have been with the growth of the company. Uh, The vast majority of the investors on that board, when things were going great, were totally cheering for effectively redlining that business. And then it turned around and, you know, became a disaster. So I think that we all share some culpability, that one culturally, and it's not simply something you can place on Adam Newman's head. The second thing, though, that's important to note from my vantage point, is that there are certain problems that are really, really hard problems to solve. And one of those is the fact that there is just not nearly enough housing built in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that can be solved with an incrementalist approach. It needs a bold, visionary yeah, approach. Great point. Now, as to whether or not Adam Newman is the right vehicle for that bold, visionary approach, clearly some very smart people Andreessen. think so. Clearly some smart people think so. <laughs> but I happen to believe that without a bold, visionary approach, you can't really tackle this problem. Mm-hmm. And you look at the builder sentiment today, and it's clear that we're in a recession. We haven't recovered from 2008. This is an urgent concern at a matter of national security almost because of how important it is for our economy. So I'm glad that there's somebody taking a bold approach today. But it's just so interesting, Connie, looking at Adam Newman's track record. I remember Dee's interviews with him. It would be fascinating to have him back on now. But the fact that that Andreessen Horowitz is willing to put so much money into this startup before it launches, before there's any track record. Um, I was struck by this quote that Andreessen wrote. We love seeing repeat founders build on past successes by growing from lessons learned. Connie, aren't there other people innovating in this space? Is he the only one? <laughs> <laughs> there are indeed. And, you know, it is a, a, a curiosity, but also one of the interesting strengths of Silicon Valley that it's so fault tolerant. And so when any given founder or any given sector doesn't work, the money just comes right back in and does it another try. Now, as to, again, whether or not Adam Newman is the right person for that uh, is really in the eye of the beholder. And it does, I think, speak to the fact that uh, people who are able to command capital continue to be able to command it, to some extent distended from their performance of it. And he seems to have that capacity. But regardless, I do, again, most importantly, think that so long as there's a bold visionary approach in this area, we as a society are doing the right thing. I, and Julia, to your point, I guess the question is, is he humbled enough, right? And we'll see as this goes on. But I'm, as a second <laughs> act, Kanye's skeptical whether he's humbled enough. We'll see. Adam Newman, we'll see. Come talk to us. Yeah, we should get him back on. Adam Newman, you have an invite to come talk to us here on Tech Tech. We are very curious to hear more. Meanwhile, Affirm shares almost 80% off their highs, but CEO Mac, Max Levchin's still bullish why he thinks it might take a recession to prove he's not wrong. That's after the break. Stay with us. 
Time now for a gut check on a firm. Shares down around 60% year-to-date with investors worried about borrowing costs and competition amid the ongoing volatility. So what will it take to prove the street wrong? How about a full-blown recession? At least that's according to founder and CEO Max Levchin telling The Journal he still has faith in the buy-now-pay-later company's ability to lend money and control delinquencies throughout a potential slowdown. Tech Check is back after a quick break. Some pension funds feeling the pain from crypto's big drop this year. They've been pouring millions into cryptocurrencies and lenders over the last year. Now they're also some of the biggest losers. Uh, But with Bitcoin and Ether staging a bit of a comeback over the last few weeks, Kanye has the story changed once again. It's acting as it always has, like a risk asset. Um, But Bitcoin hitting 25K. Yeah. Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Uh, The way that I think about this is it feels a little bit like 2000. Uh, and what that means is we may have just come out of an asset bubble in crypto. Uh, and it took eBay three years to recover from their highs, uh, but then they ended up going 10x. It took Amazon eight years, and they ended up going 150x. It took Oracle 14 years, and so I think that there's going to be a recovery from some. Cisco never recovered. Ah, thank you. I was just about to go <laughs> there with you. Cisco never recovered. And there were some you never even heard of and again because plenty. they went bust. The majority of them went bust. And okay. that's actually what's going to happen here, and that's what's happening here, is you're seeing the bankruptcies coming, you're seeing the deleveraging coming, you're seeing a lot of the unwinding of the activity that was happening over the course of the last three years, where so much of crypto, particularly in DeFi, was yeah. so over-levered with each other and so insular, and you're seeing a lot of that unwinding happening, and the fundamental value is now going to have to interact with the rest of the assets in the real world. So what is the fundamental value? Because I know you guys are still investing, like many other VCs, taking this as an opportunity to continue to get into the space. If it is going to be like the internet and hugely profitable and successful one day, what is that fundamental value? Four pieces. Composability, immutability, uh, decentralization, and efficiency. And in each one of those, they actually are in tension with the others. And those are all somewhat philosophical, but what that means is we're building a new type of internet stack. And that takes a while, and that needs to be, frankly, subsidized, in some cases, via a productive bubble. Has anyone achieved it yet? Uh, I believe that there are a number of green shoots where you're seeing that real activity. A couple of decentralized exchanges are fundamentally substantially more composable and immutable. And you look at what FTX is doing and how they're trying to think about commodities Mm -hmm. in a totally different way. You think about companies like Goldfinch, what they're doing for cross-border lending in a different way. I see there are green shoots there. Absolutely. Okay, we'll continue watching. Um, If you want more Tech Check on the go, make sure you follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. You can hear Kanye on our show today. Tech Check is back in just a moment. We couldn't stop talking about it during the break. I tried to push it, but my takeaway is that Iron Source made sense for a lot of reasons. Your takeaway, though, is that um, it's smaller, easier for them to digest and stay true, right, to what they do. Absolutely. And he said something really interesting, which was that 40% of the revenue and the activity on the content side of the business is coming from the metaverse. This wants to be a content business, building the content infrastructure for the next generation. And they don't want to be an advertising business. And if they buy something too big, they might suffer from some indigestion there. Advertising is like a dirty word almost among some developers of gaming. Especially among gaming developers. Totally. Now, one more thing before we go, and that's retail. A big week for the sector as names such as Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, and Kohl's all get set to report results. They should give us a good read on that slowing consumer that's hit tech results across the sector. Kanye, curious what you're looking for here. Last quarter, Walmart said higher costs, supply chain troubles, and higher inventories ate away at profits. What do we think is going to happen? 
Uh, I think it, a lot of it has to do with uh, whether or not consumer demand uh, can come back and whether or not consumer demand can come back from the softening of last quarter. The fact that Walmart is cutting costs means that this is something substantially broader than valuations, substantially broader. And so I believe that yeah. we may be fighting away from a recessionary environment here. Can they be more of an Amazon, too, which already did a lot of the cost cutting? It'll be interesting to see. Meanwhile, guys, the Nasdaq turned it around now up four tenths of a percent. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.